This episode is brought to you in partnership with African Retooled and the College of Human Resource Management, Kenya. On this episode of African Retooled, we don't really have employees, we have people. Some of these people are working for us, some of our best people will not be working for us, they'll just give us hours. Organizations that talk about human resources need to rethink about who they are. Mm -hmm. What is your identity? What is your purpose? Mine is really a call of action to their professionals. They need to grow themselves for the future. When we were talking about AI and the future of work, there was the fear of going around that machines are, are going to replace people. I really don't think that can happen. Yes, you get the efficiency you need from the machines, but you still need the human. Do you have the tools to face the future? Welcome to African Retooled, a podcast where Chris and Martin, two African recruiters, will explore the changing world of work. Where students come to learn and gain insights into the world of work, discover how they can continue to tool themselves with skills of the future, where managers will explore with us how to confidently navigate the complexities of future work in order to be key disruption agents and remain competitive where CEOs, business owners come to understand the evolution of work, allowing them to leverage on emerging roles and remain competitive and achieve their objectives. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to yet another episode of African Retool. We are so glad to be here to bring this wonderful episode to you. This is Martin and... And drum rolls, Martin for me. Yes. Chris... It's a pleasure to be back and uh, to always have these conversations with you all. Um, Martin, it's truly a pleasure as well to connect with you. We've been doing this for many years and mm -hmm. uh, I guess we decided to transfer this onto a platform so yep. the rest of the world could listen to us. And Indeed. It's, and it's been fun so far. It has. And funny enough, we've not spoken about the area of uh, concentration that both of us are in. Absolutely. The area of... Um, uh, they call it people and culture, but uh, to many of you, you'd know it as human resource, human capital. And so we've never actually spoken about our careers. And, That's and, true. And, and just introspect and see, are we actually um, pivoting? Are we actually um, staying true to the, the fourth industrial revolution and the changes that are coming? Mm -hmm. And so we decided, uh, why not uh, end the year in style and actually challenge ourselves? That's true. And to do this, we then uh, thought how best uh, to do this then get some leaders mm -hmm. um, uh, who can challenge us and who can share with us some of their insights based on what they're seeing, what they've done. That's true, Chris. And you see that the biggest thing uh, at the moment is, you know, with the fourth industrial revolution, companies have gone through whatever they're going through and we can't leave people behind. So how are we getting people to reskill and what is the role that the people and culture department then plays in this whole narrative? Absolutely. And, and to your point, I mean, Organizations have had the challenge around managing productivity in a remote world, um, the discussion around wellness, mm -hmm. um, the, the discussion around um, around engagement, like I said, and just how do you how do you manage an organization where the contract between the employer and the employee has has shifted? Mm -hmm. You now have times where you 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 contract with someone for a day mm -hmm. or for a shorter period than it was before. Exactly. And so. The question around the employee life cycle is that still 
as it was as it was and and what does that mean for the people and culture team yeah what does it mean to 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 be able to manage an agile workforce if your structures are changing in that direction absolutely absolutely and so we 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 did our homework as always we went and looked for some of the best uh, leaders that we could find and we landed on one such guest we have two lovely ladies on the on the on the episode today and so one such guest is uh, dr rose phillips a phenomenal leader um who lives in south africa and who has constantly pivoted and carved out her own career not allowing herself to be boxed by the norms um and you'll understand in a bit why i say that um today she goes by the title of african futurist and advisor on the future of work through a company that she founded called abundance at work and i and i challenge you all to go and look at uh, her website drrosephillips.com um and you'll be amazed by some of the, the work that she's doing and the stuff that she's talking about she presently serves on the Gibbs Business School Executive Committee Executive Director. This is uh, obviously one of the foremost uh, business schools in South Africa. Um and prior to that role, she was a group executive of People and Culture at the Absa Group in South Africa. So she has dabbled with HR at the senior most level. Mm-hmm. Now, I found this interesting, but this I guess was the most surprising one, Martin. Mm-hmm. Before all of this, she was a medical doctor. She studied to be a medical doctor and you can imagine how many years that takes. You know. And then what the par- African parents um um how proud they are when you've become a doctor. You, just, you know with medicine. And yeah. then you tell them that a few years later you've you've shifted. Mm-hmm. That is not an easy thing to discuss with anybody. <laughs> not at all. And um, so yeah. So yes, yeah, so she she she's no longer practicing as a doctor but you can imagine this these these things I just mentioned are, are the stuff she's been doing. Indeed, a yeah. truly retooled African. Absolutely. Also on the show today is Margaret Kinenjui. She is a leader in all her respects. She is currently the principal at the College of Human Resource Management in Kenya. She's a management and training professional and she at the college has been able to oversee the onboarding of various collaborative partnerships which have seen international institutions come in to offer certification courses and she has also been able to increase the access of courses to corporate uh, Kenya by uh, creating specific programs and products that are taken to the corporate institution to allow for the employees to be able to uh, access these these um trainings uh she is a certified organization effectiveness coach she's a certified hr consultant she's a certified professional in managing workplace conflict and a certified hr professional um Margaret's focus remains on the development of organizational skills, emotional intelligence, people engagement, self-awareness and career planning. We are really looking forward to engaging with her just to understand what the future of HR looks like and what learning and development is really going to do for organizations in the future. So welcome to this show Dr. Rose Phillips and Margaret Kenyandu. Thank, Thank you, you, Martin. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. Thank so, you, Chris. Thank you, Martin. Uh, not good to be here on the podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. Today is an exciting day. We we're bringing um, insights from two different countries in Africa. Um, Dr. Rose is um, joining us from South Africa. Margaret is with us here in Nairobi, Kenya, and um, it's a very um, it's a particularly interesting episode for us, uh, Martin, because we are talking about the future of our roles. Exactly. So at the end of this uh, you and I will know if we're we are out of jobs or whether or not uh, we should uh, uh continue and and be confident. 
perhaps to kick us off, it's I think it's rather obvious that uh, we have indeed gone through unprecedented change. Almost feels like a cliche statement to make in, in this season. We've said that over and over again. Um, but for you particularly, uh, Dr. Rose and, and Margaret, um, you're both um, running institutions that are learning institutions and, and, and you took a particular hit um, during this period because uh, for, for, to a great extent, learning was indeed physical. So we are curious to, 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 to hear from you how, how you've been in this season and how, how perhaps stuff that you were already working on was, was significantly accelerated as a result of, um, of COVID. Um, perhaps over to you, Dr. Rose. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Chris. In response to that question, I probably want to approach it in two ways. People do talk about change being constant and we are in a VUCA world and we are now in a Barney world and what was previously volatile is now completely brittle. And I want to just latch on to the concept of learning. And I think that Margaret would probably agree with me. That's why we choose to be learners and that's why we choose to be in learning institutions is that learning is the way in which you protect yourself against the constant change. Because if you constantly learn, you constantly unlearn, you constantly relearn, that is your tool for managing change. So, so for me, being in a learning institution during a time of dramatic change was actually almost an important um, antidote to the psycho psychology of all the change that's going on on, on our planet and, and, and on our continent. But in terms of the physical change that needed to happen, yes, of course, people moved from being able to access our campus directly, which is a lovely space to get together. And you know, when you get together with people, um, you have creativity, new ideas, shared innovations happen, new networks are made, new relationships are formed. And you can't do that any longer. So as a business school, we've had to really almost accelerate our digital presence. And it's not always that easy when you know how to teach face-to-face -face, and now you have to teach remotely. You have to engage remotely. You have to create rapport remotely. You have to land your messages remotely. Uh, it's not an easy transition for you as the facilitator or the teacher or for you as the student who pays a lot of money to, to learn something that they will carry with themselves for a very, very long time. But I'm glad that we did. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's almost a lesson for society that those who accelerated digitally before the pandemic and during the pandemic did much better than those that, that had not been able to do so. And I think that this remote work, remote study, remote engagement, hybrid way of living is here to stay. So we must get used to it. Absolutely. Margaret, what's your, what's your take? How, how has it been for you uh, throughout this season? Learning institutions are zero aware, Chris and Martin, in this country were the first culprits of what happened because we were shut immediately. Stop what you're doing, go home. So you are there with students, over a thousand students, uh, you have a faculty, what do you do? You're right in the middle of a semester and uh, it's like the whole world stops. Luckily for us, I, I think we were able to be quite agile in turning, uh, you know, in turning things around. Because just before COVID, we had been uh, thinking of, you know, setting up our learning management system, the other system. So we quickly uh, got together as a team 
and uh, we were able to have it. The, the beauty of it is now we were able to do it uninterrupted because every, everybody was away. But I think the also advantage we have in Kenya is that our, uh, our internet is not so bad. <laughs> At least we were able to do this quite uh, quickly. And the beauty of it is, even as we were doing this, uh, the whole of my management team and my admin staff were scattered all over the country. Because when the, the whole country was shut down, it looked like everybody just decided to go back to their villages, back to their, you know, wherever. But because we were able to connect through the internet, we were able to, put, uh, to you know, have our learning management system up and running. We were able to conduct training for our faculty and be able to have an intake uh, for our students in July. And we were able to bring on board 400 students who were able to train on the system. The beauty I think we also have is that most of our students are mature students. So access to, you know, internet was not really a problem. But it's, it's, um, it's been, it's a game changer because right now, uh, our students are, you know, have taken very well to this system. And even when the option of physical classes came up, we saw that most of them opted to remain, you know, uh, as virtual learners. And it's really been, uh, you know, and I, like I say, it's a game changer in how you to deliver learning to our students. Yeah. Uh, other than just the academic program, of course, uh, as you know, uh, we have uh, the capacity building program and we are able to put together the webinars on different topics. Uh, and for th the reason we did this is because most of the, uh, you know, most of the learning institutions actually closed down because they were not able to put up such system in place. And what happens is that with everything shut down, what happens is people will forget who you are, where you are. And for us, this was just a way of ensuring that we keep in touch with our learners, we keep in touch with our networks, we keep in touch with the HR practitioners. So every month we had like two webinars on different topics, which we are not charging at all. And this ensured that we were, you know, we were in touch with the people that are, you know, our networks, uh, so to speak. So it's been quite a game changer with what's happening. But going forward, like Karoli has said, this is the way to go. Like I said, most of our students don't want to come to physical classes. They, it's more convenient for them. Say, for example, if I'm having an evening class, instead of having to fight with traffic to come to class, I'll sit in my office, have you know, take a two-hour, two-hour, you know, class, and then I'll just go home. So it's it, it, it's been really uh, interesting to see how things pan up. I think it's the way to go. And the other advantage is that now we are able to reach even people who didn't have been able to have on board in our classes. Across the country, we have students even from Rwanda are coming in onto our classes. The interesting one is from West Africa, uh, South, South Sudan. So it, 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 makes, it, makes, uh, it has made even learning more accessible to people who have in the past not been able to, to you know, access this learning. Now that we are able then to attract more people, um, like you've been able to do, Margaret, and we are able to see people coming in from different parts of the continent to take up uh, learning with the institutions because of the fact that we've gone virtual. Rose, what are the shifts we have seen in what is being demanded by professionals in as far as what we are learning now, both from the student as well as the uh, employers. What sort of shifts have we seen in the demands for different types of courses and how they're delivered? I, I maybe want to start off with the point about 
being able to now learn from anywhere, any place, at any time and at any pace. So before we talk about what people want to learn, I think that as business schools or learning institutions, our ability now to be much more accessible, much more impactful and much more inclusive should not be underestimated and undervalued. I think that is very, very important. And I think for, for our purpose in life, which is about learning, to be able to say that even more now in a digital era, I think it's a wonderful thing. We can be more accessible. We can be more impactful. We can be more inclusive, and we need to be. I think in terms of the changes that we see from the before and the after, I think that before and after is not necessarily pandemic-related, but it is almost before 4IR, after 4IR. I think that's sort of where the big changes really come. So it's sort of a change from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism, which is really the notion that the business of business is business. So I'm in a business school. So when I'm going to reflect on this, it's not just going to be human capital-related skills. It's business yeah, skills that's, in that's, general. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and so... So, so the business of business is business, and business had no responsibility to society broader than just to optimize and maximize profit. That's sort of the before digital, before the sustainable development goals, before environment, social, and governance pressures, before climate change. And now we've had climate change, we've had the pandemic, we've had the digital revolution all happening at the same time. And people now want to learn about purpose-driven leadership. People now want to learn about how do you stamp out corruption? How do you improve corporate governance? Uh, those kinds of challenges, especially on our continent, where we still have challenges of corruption, where we still have challenges of what it means to be an ethical leader. All of those things are things around responsible finance, responsible economics, responsible leadership, purpose-driven leadership is in the leadership space that more and more people want to understand about. The second part that people want to understand more about is in the strategy space. More and more, especially knowledge workers, are learning that the machines can do many, many things faster, better, more efficiently, more accurately than we can with artificial intelligence, with machine learning, which means that the doing is important, but not as important as the thinking and you have to be able to work in your business as well as work on your business. So thinking about how to convert yourself from a very strong operator to a strategist and being able to work in the business and work on the business. So those are two areas that is, that is also changing. There's the shift. Of course, much more about digital fluency. Now, we used to focus digital fluency very much on everybody else in the organization, but leaders didn't think that they needed to change. But of course, the digital fluency in the world that is really needed for us to adopt to the digital way of world is actually amongst leaders. The lowest digital fluency that you find in an organization comes from low digital fluency of the leaders of the organization. And so digital fluency is an important skill set 
that everybody needs, including leaders. And I'm not necessarily meaning everybody needs to code, although, of course, STEM education is an important education to have. But for us at a business school level, being able to understand the importance of data, to be able to understand the importance of moving from linear thinking to exponential thinking, given how fast technology is changing, is something that you really, really need to understand. So that's the next shift that has happened. The shift from thinking about your intelligence is purely IQ to now adapting to EQ. So a lot about self-understanding, self-reflection, personal development, personal effectiveness, leadership effectiveness, a lot of that kind of new way of thinking about things people are very, very interested in. The fourth one is on climate change. A lot of now understanding of all the elements you need to understand about climate change. A lot of it is about responsible business. What are the climate financing or climate policies that need to be put in place in terms of working in public-private partnerships? And then finally, at the people level, I think there's a lot of work now around putting people first. To have a great customer experience, you have to have a great employee experience. And so how do you elevate the possibilities, the abundance, the capabilities of employees? And whether that is focusing on resilience or whether that is focusing on wellness, whether that is focusing on stress management, all of those elements of unlocking the employee experience, that's the fifth element that is coming quite strongly through in terms of the change of the before digital revolution, before COVID to after COVID. Absolutely. Um, I, I agree with what Rosie saying. I remember, like, for example, in 2019, we did a lot of capacity building programs on AI and the future of work. Who knew that the future of work was right on our doorstep the next year? Yeah. I mean, it, it just made, you know, everything, uh, you know, change the, the way we work, uh, the way we operate, the way we relate to each other at the workplace. So, um, and, and of course, um, the, the other issues that have come into play, especially in the HR space, which is now dealing with uh, people at the workplace, there are things which we have observed, which uh, as a college, as an institution, we need to ensure that our programs speak to them. Like, for example, a training lead analysis, what is it they would like to see when we do our training program? They're talking about, you know, how do you use technology to drive performance? And of course, we know this is important with all what is happening. There are new uh, areas, especially the remote working. How do you manage productivity or how do you measure performance now that people are working remotely how do we know that somebody is actually working or not just you know sitting at home doing maybe absolutely nothing then of course there are the issues of um, the the mentorship the coaching capacity building for internal progression and employees just to ensure there is the organizational longevity so all these things have come into play and of course there's the issue of the the health issues the mental issues this has is big right now i don't know about you rosie in south africa but uh, for some reason, this has become very big during these COVID areas. But personally, I think it was there just that now with COVID and the issue, the fact that now people are forced or uh, by circumstances to spend more time together, this has really escalated in this country. And of course, this is manifested or it has it's played out at the workplace, uh, uh, you know, in different ways. So HR practitioners have to have skills on how do you manage, uh, you know, 
employees with all these um, issues at the workplace. Chris, if, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to latch on to that point made by Margaret around the question around wellness. And I don't want to lose that point because I think it's actually quite important, not just for South Africa or for Africa, but, but really for the rest of the world. I actually think that the next pandemic is mental wellness. I think as we have added the complexity of living and working from home, we're starting to see that um, people think you can be more productive working from home, studying from home, learning from home, managing everything because you don't have to add a commute. But in fact, what seemed to have been an initial uplift in productivity comes at huge sacrifice to people's personal lives. And the consequence is an acceleration of burnout, an acceleration of the need to take time out. You see it now with a great resignation where people are just saying, I can't, I can't cope with all of these things. Right. So mental wellness, and especially for the, the, um, the professionals that are very interested in people management, this is something that has to be watched very, very carefully, has to be dealt with, and we have to help our people with skills around mindfulness, skills around resilience, uh, and, and we must not forget that. And I want to just add to that, which is a point I forgot to make in the previous question, was we're starting to see the importance of also remembering diversity and inclusion. Now, I know that sometimes in, in South Africa, it is converted into black economic empowerment. So it is about black and white. But everywhere, there are certain vulnerable groups that have been even more severely impacted by the pandemic and by remote work. Women, for example, many more women than men have lost their jobs. Many more women than, than men are still taking more and more care responsibilities in the home and then adding work responsibilities. So I think that the pandemic has added an even more impact on women. And as we're trying to get more and more to gender equality, we have to recognize that we're going to have top of mind or need to have top of mind managing diversity and inclusion and what it really means to be a flexible, all-inclusive workplace. I, I really like that point, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Rose and Margaret, mm -hmm. around wellness, mm -hmm. because um, and I'm just uh, picking on, a, on an article you wrote, uh, Dr. Rose, around um, well, well futures require well-beings. I found that very insightful, um, where you talked about the fact that uh, organizations for the longest time when we were in the physical world, we always had, um, what do you call it? Um, the safety officers would tell us about the exit points and the fire, what do you call it? Martin? The fire exit. The fire exit and all that. And, and, and now mm -hmm. the need for us to, uh, why don't I let you speak to that particular point? Because I think it was really <laughs> profound. Yes. It's, an, it's so lovely to hear that you read my article. Absolutely. That's great to, great to hear. So, yeah. so yes, I wrote this article about how whenever we started um, any of our meetings, especially in the manufacturing industry, we'd have the safety briefing. And we would always know where the emergency exits are and et cetera, et cetera. But now we don't do that any longer. Yet in this day and age, we need the same kind of safety briefing for our mental health because our mental health is still suffering. And in fact, I want to, to in a sense, almost give a, a bit of a, a toolkit that we use or I use quite um, quite 
extensively. So instead of having a safety briefing in the mornings or whenever we do any call, we do a check-in. And the check-in is actually a safety briefing. The check-in is, how are you? And actually listen to hear what the answer is and, and, and respond to that answer. And, and once we were on a call and, and we did a check-in and we, I, I asked this question, if you had a superpower today, what would it be? And I listen to what the answers are. And when I hear that these superpowers are about, I want to have an invisibility cloak. So I want to disappear. <laughs> or I want to, um, I want to be, there's a, there's a character that, that can run faster than time. Right. So, so I want to have more time. Then I realize something, something is fundamentally wrong. And then I cancel the meeting. And I say, I'm giving you this hour back. Mm. And use the hour in any way that you need to. Because as they say, when you board a flight, and we've all heard this, when you, when, um, in the case of emergency, oxygen masks will be deployed, pull the mask towards you with a sharp tuck. Um, but the next thing they say is, please put on your own oxygen mask before you put on the oxygen mask of anybody else. Because if you can't help yourself, you cannot help anybody else. I say that you cannot pour from an empty cup, mm. but you can also not add to a full cup. And so I encourage people to practice mindfulness, um, to take some time to themselves, because taking time to yourself is not self-indulgence. It is an essential self-preservation tool. This is African Retooled. This episode is brought to you in partnership with African Retooled and the College of Human Resource Management, Kenya. We've touched on a lot of stuff that uh, would be of interest to HR professionals and especially those looking after learning departments and, and just the need for them to re relook at what is, uh, what is important for the organizations they're, they're supporting. But just to be a little bit more selfish, I'd like to go a little bit deeper into the core of HR. And I know Dr. Phillips, uh, Dr. Rose, you've, 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 you've pivoted in your career, not originally a HR professional, or originally a doctor. If you imagine our listeners, this is, we're talking to a, a doctor who's then transitioned to consulting, business consulting, and now, uh, and even was at the helm of um, HR for one of the largest banks on the continent in HR and now is in, 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 in the learning institution called Gibbs. But um, you would definitely have insight into something we talk about called the employee life cycle. So for all HR professionals in the call, you will be familiar with this. Um, just the traditional way of looking at the cycle of, or the journey of an employee. And Dr. Rose, I've heard you in the past speak to this particular point. How is this going to shift um, or how is this shifting? Um, is it still relevant in a time where we have gig workers, where we have remote workers, where we have employees who you engage for literally a day. Is that life cycle still? Or, or, or? Or, or employees who are robots. Or employees who are robots. Oh my goodness. So there you go. So, so just speak to that. And, and, and what does a HR professional then need to start thinking about differently? Interesting. I am a retooled African. I didn't realize that <laughs> yes, up until yes, now, yes, but I think I am. Yes. I am a retooled African. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Look, I've always, I've always been of the mindset that career longevity requires career mobility. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to have career mobility. Now, when you talk to any HR professional or if you talk to any organizational leadership, you know, the one thing that they want is tenure, right? Mm-hmm. The longest serving employees. You remember, we used to award and reward tenure. We still you do. You made it to fit. Yeah, I, yes, we, we still do. You're absolutely right. If you made it to 30 years, you get a gold watch. My dad was one of those people. So imagine me telling my dad um, after I finished medicine, a few years after that, I'm going to leave medicine. When it took everything him and his, my, my mother had it's, it's, it's to crazy. be able to put me through medical school, to have the first doctor in their, in their community, in their family, in our family. And now she says she doesn't want to do it. And he said, what about your pension? <laughs> um, <laughs> because that's the way he was raised, right? That's the way he was socialized. And that's the way we still, even to this day, in our generations, in our generation of leaders, who are managing Gen Zs who really do not care about career longevity that comes from tenure. Mm. They want to learn different things because they have the internet, because they have technology, because they have the ability to learn faster than you can even teach them. Because there's nothing you can tell them that they couldn't find on TikTok or they couldn't find on Google. So, so for me, the ability to appreciate that the employee life cycle is multiple life cycles. There's always, in, within every employee's life, there's a life cycle. There's a point at which they are being onboarded into a certain way of work, whether they are working for one, two, three, four, five organizations as a gig worker. There is, of course, that whole notion of being onboarded, of feeling part of a culture of an institution. But there's also the point, the point about how do you learn, who do you learn with, do you appreciate that people don't need to count cars, you're not counting activities that people do any longer, you are, you are measuring outcomes. Now, what kind of a leader do you need to be when you are measuring outcomes and not watching bums in seats, mm-hmm. pardon my language? Mm-hmm. We don't have leaders that have been tooled in the way to manage the employee life cycle, to manage career progression in that way. When somebody says to you, I want to leave, you have a heart attack. You think that's the worst possible thing that could happen. I actually, while during my time as the head of people and and culture at APSA, I said to my team, yes, we've got fantastic onboarding capabilities, but talk to me about what we do for offboarding. I want to understand what we do for offboarding because employees, gig workers are going to onboard, offboard, onboard, offboard, onboard, offboard. And if your people value proposition to a gig worker isn't such that they will keep coming back, go and learn from other organizations, come back and bring that learning into your organization. If you're not that kind of organization that they always will come back to, you are going to lose out in the future of work because the way people work is not going to change. You will have to change. So this very hierarchical organization that cannot adapt to flat structure, the organization where leadership is at the top of the organization and not leadership is everywhere, 
anyone is a leader at every level that it's very clear that there's a distinction between who is a manager and who is a leader a leader leads a manager manages these are two different skill sets one is very operational other one is very inspirational if you don't have that capability if you don't understand analytics everything even in hr people don't understand this hr is not intuition we live in this world where we think that hr is about intuition hr is about gut feel hr is about pink and fluffy in fact hr is very data led and so we have to also learn about people analytics that's a skill set that we that we need so yes the world is a very very different world and as hr professionals we need to set up our organizations and our human capital departments to cater for the new type of employee whether they are the permanent employee the contractor the gig worker or the robot and the combination of all of them yeah. and we must prepare our leaders to lead in a way that an employee is welcome and feels welcome whether they are permanently employed for 30 years and that's fantastic or some people choose a very specialist career path and they love to be in the same organization for a long time but more and more workers are not going to choose that as a career option and you must be able to cater for both yeah and we'll speak a bit more about that margaret um has it changed for you um as as the cost is likely to shift in light of this reality um the fact that um the employee life cycle is not going to be a traditional life cycle i think i'd like to speak more from a leadership point of view more than a hr and i i agree with what uh, rosie is saying and i'll look at it more on the issue of generational uh, you know differences uh, right now we have the baby boomers exiting and uh, gen x also preparing to leave the labor market and as you're aware they have to deal with the gen y and millennials who are the new kids on the block uh, the gen z and this has brought its own challenges at work as we know the baby boomers they identify their strengths as you know as organizational memory optimism and willingness to work long hours most of them uh, people like me we grew up in a time where large corporate hierarchies rather than flat management structures and teamwork based job roles on the other hand the millennials and the gen y group have a completely different outlook on what they expect from their employment experience most of them as we know are well educated very well skilled in technology extremely self confident and articulate they are able to multitask and have lots of energy and they regard themselves very highly have even higher expectations and prefer to work in teams rather than individually they seek immediate results from their work and they desire for speedy advancement always looked upon by the older colleagues as, uh, you know as a weakness and um the digital space we know has opened up platforms to access endless materials in different areas and the youth now this generation we know they are building enterprises based on skills you know learn online they are creating mega businesses based on content through youtube instagram tiktok you name it and for them the traditional you know life cycle is is not something they want you know it's some something that is really foreign to them you know and as more and more of the generation enter the job market employers are faced with the challenge of making major adjustment in their engagement model how do you motivate this group how do you engage them how do you even retain them you know uh 
but employers have to carefully consider what strategies they have to cultivate and retain valuable you know uh, this yeah. so listening to both of you i think that the the common theme is that for one employee engagement becomes such a critical piece and mastering and and figuring out how to deploy that in a multi-generational organization that's that's a big challenge because it's not just about employee engagement pardon mm-hmm. interrupting mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. it's about the experience, the experience. Mm-hmm. because people people talk about engagement as almost another word for enhancing productivity mm-hmm. enhancing performance which is a very selfish organizational driven motivation but what you actually want to do is unlock the potential of your employees and they will generate wealth for the organization they will generate innovation they will generate growth so the engagement of employees comes from creating experiences for them where they can thrive mm-hmm. putting the employee experience first. Yeah. So yes it's about it's about unlocking their engagement how to engage with them but it's also to give them the tools and create an organizational culture and capability and and um and environment where the experience of the employee is such where they feel home. Mm-hmm. They can bring their true self to work. So you, that's a, that's an interesting yeah. point uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Rose from the perspective of you know just listening to you I feel like the learning and development um function of hr is going to play a very strategic and central role uh, going forward because what i'm hearing is you cannot be looking at the way things were done before and saying that this is how we are going to learn and teach our staff or our employees what we need to look at more is what are the skill sets that are going to be needed and even as i train on these i need to understand that how will this specific skill set then continue to evolve and always be forward looking and future looking just as the strategy of the organization is and aligning L&D to that and you see traditionally the first thing you want to cut out when you're saying we need to reduce um our budget is L&D L&D was the first thing to go because it was let's learn from the past and we can do that intuitively but when you're looking at L&D being future facing and 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 being a very key component to the strategy of the organization and not just the HR department then it's actually where we need to increase our spend and 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 creating that environment that you speak of Dr. Rose that will then enhance um people being able to reskill and retool in the organization and you know that's that's what I'm hearing from this Chris is mm-hmm. no, oh, absolutely, absolutely Martin uh, so if I can respond to to what Martin saying saying Uh, just because I, I think it's, it's just so important that we don't lose that. Firstly, Martin, you're 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 making the statement that learning is is fundamentally important, and cutting out learning is, and I'm going to put it like this: it's a dumb move. Mm. Strategically, it's a stupid thing to do to cut out learning budgets during a time where, as I said right at the beginning, your only competitive advantage in an agile world is learning. the only competitive advantage it was alvin toffler who said this mm-hmm. a few years ago when he wrote the book, the book um, future shock you you would have heard this mm-hmm. that the illiterate of the future are not mm-hmm. going to be those who cannot read or write but yeah. are going to be those who cannot learn and learn or relearn that okay. is where we need to focus our energy on so learning and learning relearning mm-hmm. is the most important thing we need to do secondly you made the point about future and futures orientation and futures thinking 
what we taught people, what we taught our grandparents or the way that our grandparents were taught or are teaching or were teaching no longer is relevant because the past actually has very little place in the future. So we have to constantly as learning professionals ourselves be agile and try and understand what are the future skills that are needed in our organization so that we develop those skills um, and we remain relevant. The reason why people leave organizations are twofold, bad managers, but also because they can find better opportunities elsewhere. But the best way to, to future-proof yourself, if you want to use that term, is to reskill your employees because it's easier to reskill than it is to go and find the skills mm-hmm. outside of your organization. So <laughs> skilling people, upskilling, reskilling, Focusing on learning is fundamentally important. And you'll see many of the leading organizations now have extremely professional learning departments. They have PhDs in learning Mm. that they have employed inside their organizations. We, We deal with clients who have learning departments that are in themselves able to run their own business school. Because they've really taken charge of the strategic advantage called learning and used that as one of their strategic enablers to be a competitive organization into the future. So fundamentally important, Martin. Yeah, Yeah. you spoke to Agile, um, Dr. Rose, and that's an area of of particular interest to us on on the podcast because a lot of organizations are transitioning to this Agile ways of working and the challenge and the strain on a lot of HR professionals is how then do you structure this new organization? Um, so it's a skill we've probably had in the past around just the traditional organization design. And now there's a challenge to us to think differently about how to structure the organization to take up this new way of working. And uh, the question to you is, um, what, what are you observing? Is, 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 is something we need to do differently? So I think that I think where people made the mistake of of how to introduce agile beyond the IT department into the rest of the organization, they took agile methodology that came from DevOps, which is really an IT capability, and they thought they could just wholesale adapt it into the entire organization. But it's not entirely the same. The thing about agile methodology that you apply to an organizational dynamic, it's really about creating networks. It's about creating ecosystem capability inside your organization. What do I mean by that? Is you try and create self-organizing teams. And every team in itself, it's almost part of a hive, a beehive. Every, every, every bee is part of a beehive. And as you create those self-organizing teams and you create autonomy, that's the other thing. You can't have agility without giving employees autonomy. You have to hand over autonomy. So when you create these self-organizing teams, small teams that can organize themselves, think for themselves, have autonomy, decide on their own leadership, and you create multiples of that, now you amplify an ecosystem way of doing it. It's like the internet works. It's like platform businesses work. It works very, very well, but you have to flatten the organizational structure. You have to disband hierarchies, and you have to be able to manage multiple 
organizational networks of teams, which also means if you think about performance management, you can't manage performance as an individual, an individual success. Performance management and performance excellence is on the basis of team success. So you can't have an agile organization, you can't have agile teams if you don't change everything about how an organization works, from who makes decisions, from where empowerment lies, from where power lies, from how the organizational structure works, and to how you manage performance management. And just uh, to add on to what uh, Rosie has said about uh, agile teams, um, for me, I look at it as also as a way that, um, I mean, if you want to build agile teams, you need to be able to communicate what uh, the, your organization is all about. They need to be able to trust that you will be able to give them a free hand in being able to articulate. Uh, for example, strategy, if they, they, you know, they believe in it, they understand it, and they know what the objectives of the organization will be. Because if they can visualize it, they can see it, what, you know, through you, then they'll be able to, you'll be able to inspire them and uh, be able to, you know, deliver to the organization. And uh, also on the, on the learning, uh, as Rosie had mentioned before, I believe organizations need to also capitalize on the available digital learning resources. This uh, idea of, uh, you know, uh, institutions or companies shutting down the training budget because of, uh, or, you know, uh, economic uh, considerations, I, I don't think it's a good thing. There are so many available digital learning resources that can be able to bridge the staff capacity and competency, you know, uh, gaps. And um, the work, uh, workplace being dynamic is changing every day. And if they don't rescale or retool, then eventually they'll shut down. So it's very important that this, this uh, uh, is taken into consideration by organization. Yeah. And yes, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, the programs that we are doing at the college, like I said, we are the, the premier HR college in this uh, country. We are aligned to also to the HR professional body in, in the country that is regulating the profession through an act of parliament. So we are, you know, in, you know we, we, we do uh, are in tune with what is needed in the workplace. That's... And we are all constantly getting that feedback to be able to now reprogram and, uh, you know, we redevelop our program yeah, to suit what is the market needs. That's encouraging to hear. Um, mm. Another area, Dr. Rose, Margaret, that uh, is in our view beginning to shift in the HR world is around the HR service delivery. So the traditional what you call HR operations function in, in, in most organizations. And, and, and we're seeing again because of the shift um, in, in the way we work, um, and the way people are now deploying work, um, there's obviously the, the, the influx of the use of technology by most organizations, the, 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 the use of AI now to probably gain more insights. What is your observation of, of where, where this is likely to go, Dr. Rose? Um, and and how, how must HR professionals align themselves in light of this new change? Okay, change number one, I think we're moving away from employees for the same reason we've spoken about earlier. Um, we don't really have employees, we have people. Mm. Some of these people are working for us. Some of our best people will not be working for us. They'll just give us hours. Um, so, so, so firstly, I think that um, organizations that talk about human resources, 
need to rethink about who they are. Mm-hmm. What is your identity? What is your purpose? Um, so, for example, in my role at uh, at the bank, I changed changed us from an HR organization, a human capital organization, just to be a people and culture function. We're all about people. The second thing is that, as I've said before, also move from employee engagement, move from being the police force of the organization, the human capital police force of the organization, to being the enabler and strategic partner of the organization. Because, and I believe this fundamentally, you put people first and your organization will thrive. So we move our organizational purpose as a human capital division or the people function of the organization to one that that enhances employee experience. So everything or enhances people experience. Even employee value proposition became people value proposition. In shared services center became the people experience center. Mm. It's all about the experience. It's about the moments that matter. So for us, it was about the moments that matter that you change. So you reconfigure your entire human capital or people function, Chris, to not be functional any longer. You have a function that is about reward. You have a function that is about learning. And you have a function that is about talent. And the employee must navigate their way to understand what their need is and then find the function that will serve their need. That's not the way that we should be engaging with our people. We should be adapting the organization to be present in whichever need they have. So your approach should not be functional. Your approach should be about a journey. What is your employee journey that you are trying to unlock? So if it is a learning journey, there are 19 steps in a learning journey. Two of them have to do with learning. Everything else has to do about getting leave, getting someone to replace you, finding time to, to do the work you need to do while you are learning, traveling to the place that you need to go if you are going to be traveling. There's 19 steps fitting that into your performance management, making sure that it's part of your succession plan and your development plan. 19 steps to the learning journey. Not all of them fit in the learning department. Mm. Some of that sits in the performance management department. Some of that sits in talent management department. Some of that sits with shared services because it's about managing your leave balances, etc., etc. Now, our people used to, in in our functional way of the world, had to navigate all of those things themselves spend endless hours trying to decipher like a bank, you know, which tailor do you go to and which to It can't work like that. If you want people to enhance their capability, you've got to arrive at the need. So turning the way you see your organization, your HR organization around to one that's not functionally driven, but driven according to the journeys that your employees or the people that you you engage with are going through and serving them in that way. Yes, you still have departments or units, but they must operate in an integrated way. They must learn to collaborate. And they must learn to communicate with each other in a regular, on a regular basis so that their purpose is about putting the employee or putting the people first. I think that's 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 
probably the, the a very the most pivotal point mm. I think in this in this whole session because um we've kept gravitating to the employee experience and and I guess for the HR professional listening to this particular podcast the question is how does that arrive practically for them as a HRD listening how do I reshape my structure to align to the employees to the people. life or the people's life experience yeah i, I think firstly uh, cross functional teams mm-hmm. uh, cross functional uh, centers of uh, communities of practice much more regular meetings between the various functions so that everybody knows what everybody else is doing and education in human capital that covers all areas You know, we have reward specialists that know nothing about talent. 100%. Know nothing about learning, know mm. nothing about mm-hmm. performance management. I don't know how that is even possible. <laughs> because you cannot possibly, yes, you have to have a specialization. And I will never walk away from the notion that if you can have a specialization and digital capability mm. and then be a generalist, you will make it very far in the world. Because you've got, you've got multiple skill sets. But if that's the only thing you can do, then you cannot serve an employee's needs very well. Or you cannot refer them in the way that serves their needs. Mm. Because all you can do for them is talk to them about reward. Anything else that might be bothering them, you cannot address. Which means that you did not actually help bring their possibilities to life. You did not help unlock their abundance. Yeah. You did not help get from a scarcity mindset to an abundance or a growth mindset you operate in the scarcity mindset mm. notion so in my world regular meetings in the leadership team mm. i i i i had a collaboration kpi in my organization so you have kpis for what you do well in your in your piece of the pie but that is only 60% of what you are measured on how you unlock employee experience by collaborating with other parts of the hr function is important and every hr or human capital or people professional must learn about all aspects of the employee experience and not just focus on being a reward specialist or a leadership effectiveness specialist or a learning specialist yeah. because i would not be doing you a service by allowing you to be a specialist with blinkers on and don't have generalist skills because you yourself will be relevant very very in the very near future this is african retooled yeah and i think that's the real challenge to the hr professionals listening because martin you and i were talking earlier and and the need for almost embedding some of the agile practices around getting all these skilled individuals into a particular squad and to, like you said think about the employee's experience so all of you are talking about your different specializations but with the lens of the customer in this case the employee and thinking about what are they going to experience as they come through this learning platform that we are working on and is a reward person in the room as we're talking about that and that's not done today so i think that's that for me is really that the, the big learning from this session that while you can hold on to your specialization adapt your structures and your practices to be one where you're working in teams and collaborating thinking about the employee 
Yeah, and in, yeah. In, another in, little trick I must share with you. Mm-hmm. I was giving you all my state secrets, <laughs> but a little another little trick I, I shared with you. We learned it from Google. Yeah. Is when you have these meetings, even if you have them remotely, um, but but it, it works better if you are, are all together. Is have a chair, mm-hmm. and that chair is the employee. So there's one empty chair in the room, wow. and that empty chair belongs to the employee. Wow. So you actually even put a little label on it, employee. Mm, wow. And and that way, whether that employee is a gig worker or contractor, permanent employee or robot, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. In our mindset, we recognize that there is various kinds of employees that you can have. But as we're having our leadership meetings as the head of the of the people capability and the talent lead and the recruiting lead and it's the reward lead and well and, and it's business partners. We're all sitting together as about thirteen of us. Mm-hmm. Chair number fourteen belongs to the employee. And and we always have to look to the employee in every decision that we make, the employee has a chair as well. Well that's another very practical and easy yeah. thing to implement as early as Monday for many of you listening. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Margaret, Indeed. your take on this on this interesting topic? Well, um, um, I, I actually agree with uh, with the uh, you know with what Rosie is saying. Yeah. Very very important to always regard uh, the employee as your key, you know, your key resource at work. Absolutely. And everything that you do must revolve around that because at the end of the day, these are not machines. Yeah. And if you need them to deliver for you, you have to make the environment very very you know uh, flexible, conducive for them to be able to perform. And sometimes we, I, I, we, we tend to want to complicate some of these things. Uh, and I don't think it's that complicated. Once you understand what an employee needs, the rest really falls into place. That has always worked for me. Excellent. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about the fourth IR and a lot of the, the, the different levers or drivers for change in the fourth IR have been, you know, the appearance of machine learning and AI everywhere. Uh, but something that we keep forgetting and leaving out and would like to tr- try and draw a real context and picture to is climate change. Because that has then accelerated a lot of the need for us to do sim- things as simple as working from home is better for the environment because then you're not transiting um, in vehicles. Um, uh, Dr. Rose, you know, we, we had been speaking earlier and you you had you had spoken about a very interesting uh, emerging term uh, the green worker and you know just just elaborate a little bit more about that yeah absolutely i'm glad that you raised this martin because green skills are going to be fundamental so at gibbs now specifically we're focusing a lot of our energy on understanding what are the skill sets that we need to help provide coursework for in preparing Africa to to thrive and to leapfrog the green revolution. And that is really understanding the skills we need to have to help ensure that we have a just transition to a emissions-neutral, carbon-neutral society. Because if we don't, we're going to warm and warm and warm this planet and it's going to be one that's uninhabitable for us as Africans or for the rest of the world and what are the skills that we need. I'm, I'm doing a lot of work now and you'll see in a, a lot of the articles that I write is specifically about my concern that we talk about having stranded assets. Now, stranded assets is when we are still investing in coal-powered, um, fire, coal-powered power stations and we still do coal mining 
but the rest of the world has moved away from utilizing coal because it's not renewable and it dirties the atmosphere and those emissions allows the planet to warm faster. And this is when we have the ice melting, temperatures rising, and we can't do even things like food security any longer for our vulnerable groups because we have more, we have hot weather all the time. And if you, for example, a farmer, you can't predict your agricultural output. So we need to move to renewable energies. But if we are going to keep investing in tools, in skills that are about harvesting coal or skills and tools that are about building vehicles that are, um, what's the word that we're looking, that I'm looking for now, um, based on diesel, um, based on, on petrol. If that's what we're going to continue to do, if we don't learn or help our people learn how to build wind turbines, we're going to continue to build skills inside Africa that will be irrelevant very, very soon. And I call those skills also uh, skills that are just like stranded assets, stranded skills. Mm -hmm. And that really, really worries me. Because while the rest of the world can get away with non-job growth because they can rely on technology, our reliance on technology is not to replace humans. If that's going to happen, we are going to have economic disaster on this continent. Our use of technology is to unlock human ingenuity so that we can create jobs-based growth, which means, therefore, that we have to build capability in our people to have green skills. We have to be able to build electric vehicles. We have to be able to use agriculture in a smart way and start producing plant-based protein instead of relying on cows, which are huge contributors to greenhouse gases. We have to learn to make wind turbines. Those are the things that we have to do because if we don't, we're not going to be serving our continent and we're not going to be able to serve an export market as well. But here's the thing that's even more important for me. We can leapfrog the rest of the world because we don't have all of those, a lot of those legacy assets. We can start from scratch and build the skills in our people so that we can have a green economy start our own skills revolution, build jobs, create jobs, and then contribute to a carbon-neutral society as well. I'm very, very worried that we will end up with stranded skills because we talk so much about, well, we did not contribute to greenhouse gases, the developed world did all of the polluting, which is true. Africa contributed only 5% of the problem, but we suffer the most because our continent is eating faster. And, and that means that our people, the most vulnerable people who live in areas that are most affected are going to be impacted the worst as well. And so if we do not act and leapfrog, we are going to be left even further behind. And I wouldn't want, want that to be um, the future of Africa. Perhaps as a, as a, as a, as a parting short kind of question. Um, a paradox that Martin and I um, grappled with this morning was we talk about the emergence of 
women leaders. I mean, the fact that indeed companies do need to become more diverse at the top. We've had this problem for the for the, for a number of years. How do we shore up and how do we support these women to take up leadership roles? At the same time, uh, keep up with the the demand for technology skill which they don't have. So it's almost like you want them to take up leadership roles, but they're not that many in technology. I think it's more of mentorship and having, um, you know, uh, for example, uh, HR practitioners, there's need for them to, you know, have uh, forums where they can talk to the young girls. Uh, traditionally, um, we know that for whatever reason, I don't know why that is, but girls will almost always shy away from the STEM, from any any science based to any IT programs, uh, and that's why you find that even in, uh, in the leadership positions, you don't find many of them doing that. And yet, those who end up in that space do really well. So there's a need for any uh, you know HR practitioners to have mentorship uh, opportunities to be able to bring uh, these uh, young people, the young girls, encourage them to take up those roles. Let them see the opportunities that there are in terms of career for uh, for such uh, areas. It, it's really important that they do that. Mm-hmm. And um, as, as a college, we have we have that a lot. Uh, we actually for next year, for example, we are going to have for the first time what we are calling a youth uh, in HR summit, and we are going to bring all different kinds of uh, professionals from different fields to be able to talk to you know to talk to these young uh, uh, people on the opportunities that are there, not only in HR, but in areas that they can be able to build their, you know, their capacity on. So for me, I think from a, from a learning or institution, is just creating forums where HR practitioners can be able to talk to, to these young girls. And, and, and something else also, Chris, you'll also realize, uh, even in HR, it, it, it's really interesting. When you come to uh, even our classes, uh, more than 50, actually, not even 50, like 70% of our students are, li- are women, mm-hmm. they are ladies. However, when you look at who are the HR directors or top leadership in HR, you find that it's not the women. It's the, it's the you know, it's the, yeah, it's men. Yeah, so we really need as women leaders to, to you know, to, to find out the root cause of what's happening to the girl child in terms of hitting the ceiling in, in getting to the leadership problem. Is it that we are not confident enough? Is it that we are not getting the opportunities? Is it that we don't understand the systems, the policies, the, the, the environment of what, or what we need to do? And I think it all boils down to other ones who are in leadership position to be able to now give a lending hand to the, you know, to the young ones. It's just, getting them to understand the opportunities are there in the, in the technology world or even in the same areas. Uh, I, I think that's very key. I think that organizations have to have gender equality um, manifestos. Mm-hmm. I think that first and foremost, you need to measure how you are empowering women. You need to measure how many women there are in your organization. Um, uh, with digital skills, without digital skills, it doesn't matter to me. Once they are inside the organization, they can be given digital skills. But I think you'll find that there are many women at junior levels, they don't make it to the top, so they are no role models. I'll leave you an interesting statistic. 21% of developers 
on the African continent are women. 21%. But it's also quite interesting that only 30% of technical skills that, that people learn in terms of how to code is learned from universities or institutions of formal learning. Mm -hmm. The rest people learn either in boot camps or they learn it on TikTok or they learn it on the internet. So, so we need to, we need to have more girls that code, girls and code institutions, uh, whether those are NGOs or whether they come through uh, in school, etc. I think it's important. And then I want to latch on to the point about start early. I think we still socialize uh, our women and our girls that their reproductive capability is more important than their productive capability. <laughs> and it's a sad indictment, but that's exactly yeah. what yeah. we are still doing. So girls yeah. are pretty and boys are brave. Boys are mm. courageous and girls just um, need to look good in a dress. Mm. So mm. that socializes. Girls are pink, boys are blue. You, you, you celebrate when a boy um, blows off his eyebrows with a little scientific set. But if a girl was to do that, that is a horrible thing to do. Mm. So that socialization from very, very young, where we start separating at that age what is at what is acceptable for a girl mm. and what is acceptable mm. for a boy. If mm. we don't start at that age and that starts at home and it starts at junior school, we're constantly going to get a situation where girls do not enter STEM careers. But mm. if you then look at women, and I look at Nigeria as an example, where you now find a lot of tech entrepreneurs, women that have gone into fintech, they are as successful as, as men are. So, in fact, they do as well when they are given the mm, chance. And they have to be first and foremost. It has to actually become a societal acceptance mm. that patriarchy is not the way of the world and that STEM education is an education that is equally accessible to men and women. And then I want to make a final point, Chris and Martin. We can't rely on formal education formal employment on mm. this continent or even in the rest of the world to think that that is how we're going to create jobs. Mm. We have to rely on both formal employment and entrepreneurship. Yeah. And okay. so we need to invest in our women entrepreneurs. Okay. If you invest in a woman entrepreneur, and this is a study done by, I think, Boston Consulting Group, a woman entrepreneur will give you 78 cents to the dollar, to the pound, to the euro to the rent, whatever denomination you want to, want to use. A man will give you 37 cents. <laughs> Yet if you are sitting in the lion's den or the dragon's den, you are more, in, more inclined to give the man your investment dollar than you are no, yeah. the woman. Why okay. is that when she's going to give you 78 cents mm -hmm. to the dollar versus the man is going to give you 37 cents against the dollar? It should mm -hmm. be the other way around. When women go and ask for capital, uh, they, they ask, do you have your husband's collateral? When they ask for capital, they'll tell you. You know, most of the questions what was asked were from me were, am I sure I want to be an entrepreneur? You ask the male counterpart, what was your experience like in the Dragon's Den when you went and, and asked for venture capital funding? They said, no, they asked me extensive questions about my business plan. The woman would say they never once asked me about my business plan. They asked me about me. 
And so that just that just helps you recognize that there's a lot of societal norms and mindsets still that stops women from excelling in STEM. It's not just because they deliberately choose not to. It's almost a societal uh, mindset, socialization that also needs to change to make it acceptable for more women to be in STEM careers. Because if they are, as I said, they are as successful, if not more successful than men. I remember when we were growing up, I remember we used to be told, when you educate a man, you educate one person. When you educate a woman, you educate a whole village. We know that, but for some reason, society has continued to not give the women the platform to be able to do, you know, to, to really excel in their, in, their, in, their, in their areas. And like Rosie has said, given an opportunity, they do much more you know, uh, and they, and give back more than the men do. So I think it's a societal thing, and this needs to change. We need to look at women as people who are equally, if not more, capable of doing much more when they are given the opportunity to do so. And that is something that we need also to encourage our girls, that, uh, that they are capable of doing what boys can do, if not more. Absolutely. And, and in fact... Um, in fact, to add to your point, I, I, I mentioned to the HR professionals I was talking to last week, and one of my co-panelists was saying, women will typically um, work double at the workplace just because they need to prove a point or they need to really, yeah. they need to, to, to be seen, they need to, to double the effort. And so what, if you actually are measuring the productivity of the workplace, you will see that you're getting more productivity from women. And as a business, then you need to make better decisions because if you're getting more productivity from the woman, then you probably need to increase the number of women at the workplace. Um, ETC, ETC. So mm. it's a, the challenge to my, my colleagues is we need to start measuring as well. Uh, while we're looking at the, 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 the pay disparity, we also need to measure the productivity of the, the, the different genders and, and begin to, to make some data-driven decisions. The, the, the takeaways um, that are coming through very strongly from the market and just listening to, to what's happening on the continent post-COVID, um, which accelerated the fourth IR um, effect, was that CEOs are now really signing up for you know, disruptive technologies. So there's no running away from it, whether we're in HR or any other part of the business. Because then, as we said, if learning is, is going to be central to strategy, then that means the people function is central to strategy. And therefore, the business leaders need to pay very close attention um, to what's happening with their people. And, and, and then the emotional intelligence part of it, that, that needs to be demystified. And it's not you know, just a fuzzy... Uh, warm feelings, but the real crux of the matter when it comes to, to EI needs to be brought to the table. How are we listening to our people? That's that seat that we keep referring to in the leadership round table that um, you know, represents the employee. How are we actually asking the questions that 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 seat and getting responses mm. from that? So, you know, given that takeaway, your, 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 your parting shots, um, uh, Dr. Dr. Rose and, and Margaret, um, what, what would they be? If you use technology purely to create efficiency inside an organization, which means that you find more and more ways to replace humans with machines, you will get digital efficiency, but all you will do is amplify a digital divide. Mm. 
If, however, you want to unlock the digital dividend that is that is inside the capability that machines and technology allow you to have, the only way for you to unlock the digital dividend is when you combine the intelligence of all these machines, the technology, the artificial intelligence, the cloud computing. If you combine that with human ingenuity, only then can you unlock the digital dividend. Now, what does human ingenuity mean? It means creativity. It means analytical thinking. It means emotional intelligence. It means curiosity. It means collaboration. It means all of those things that machines can't do. Because machines are going to help us do things better, but only our human beings in our organization is going to help us do better things. Amazing. And I'll leave it at that. Mine is really a call of action to the young professionals. They need to grow themselves for the future uh, in terms of equipping themselves with the right skills for, for, you know, for the future of work. When we were talking about AI and the future of work before COVID, we, there was a fear of going around that machines are, are going to replace people. But Rosie, I uh, say, I really don't think that can happen. Yes, you get the efficiency you need from the machine, but you still need the human touch or the human ingenuity to be able to, to get more out of these machines. So uh, they need to, yes, have the, the machines and the technology, but you still need the human touch to be able to have a good balance in everything. So, yes, I, I do agree with Rosie. I think this has been a brilliant, brilliant conversation. There's lots to learn. And all we can say is that we are extremely grateful to have had two wonderful uh, women leaders uh, at the helm of their their careers and, and uh, their organizations to give this conversation the life it needed. So thank you very much from African Retooled, as well as our listeners. Kwaheri, as we say, Nairobi. Thank you so much, uh, Chris and Martin, for giving me this opportunity and also for for e-meeting Rosie Asantene Koheri. Goodbye. Thank you for listening in. Go ahead now and subscribe to African Retooled on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or your favorite podcast directory. We're excited to hear from you. Send your comments and questions to africanretooled at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter and Instagram on African Retooled. Until then, keep learning, keep growing, keep retooling.